Thank you, Brother Horn, for that prayer. Um, I'm always hoping that the one that prays before I preach prays for me. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> I want to take advantage of these 25, 30 minutes, whatever hours, to make use of them. And uh, it's both a privilege and a burden. Uh, but I am, am grateful for it. Thank you, uh, Mike, for those wonderful hymns that you led us in. What a great choice. And what a serendipity, I think that's the word. You chose Lamb of God. I want to read the words again because it actually has to do with the topic that I didn't give you in the bulletin, so I'm sorry. You, you, we have telepathy menu? Oh, wow. I didn't know that. We are blessed by what you brought to the worship. This is not a show. This is us bringing to God expressions of gratefulness and thanksgiving and praise. And uh, I hope you brought your best. I am encouraged by the fellowship that we have, by your presence. And so um, um, I have had the privilege of sharing over the last year and a half off and on, um, preaching lessons from the book of Mark. I may come back to revisit that gospel again, but uh, today I'm moving to another book in the New Testament to extract a few, maybe just a few, uh, preaching lessons about ecclesia. That's the Greek word for church. It's what we call church. And it's particularly based, of course, in the seven letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. So I hope you have Revelation chapter 2 still open in front of you because that's where the lesson comes now. Uh, Shelby, it was six years ago, right? 2012, right? You didn't have a husband and you didn't have that little precious thing in your lap. And I specifically remember when I put an image of the city of Izmir, or Smyrna, the one that we're visiting today, that I remembered you being on that mountain overlooking things. Patmos is one of 2,000 islands in the Greek Myriadae, uh, the great plethora of Greek islands. There are big ones like Crete, and then there are small ones. And Patmos is the setting for the last book of the New Testament. Mark, one of the first, written around 65. And, uh, it, of course, James may be written maybe 20 years earlier, but uh, it's uh, one of the first Gospels of Jesus Christ and Book of Revelation, most probably the last. There are various theories about early date and late date, but um, that's not of interest to me today. You can study it on your own, but I'm going to place... Around the 90s, around 60-something years in the history of Christianity, one of the apostles, maybe the youngest, he definitely seemed to have lived longer than others. Others, we don't have a record of their death. But John, John was on the island of Patmos, and he received a revelation. So I will make sure not to call it revelations. <laughs> the last book of the New Testament, the Apocalypse, the revelation of uh, John and that is uh, the very unique formation of the island there with its kind of two parts. They're barely attached by a narrow uh, band with Patmos. Um, where this lesson and uh, might uh, be more um, 
I guess impactful might be as if we all could be beamed, transported, and sit on the edge of that mountain or look at that beautiful sea out there and, and think in terms of the landscape of the apostle that had served in the cause of Christ for 60 years. Towards the end of his life, he is said to have gotten off this island, spent 18 months. We don't know for sure. It's, it's tradition. He was released captured under the emperor Domitian and released under the next emperor Nerva or something like that. We're not really sure, but this was the setting for a, uh, for a period of time in exile. Park you far away from civilization where you can't impact anybody but uh, the insects and the birds that live on this island because you can't get off of it. It's a beautiful island to be on, but not if you're stuck on it indefinitely, not if it's a penal island. You're, in a sense, incarcerated by the waters. You're not welcome to share anything with other human beings. That's the setting that we just read. And um, to do it again, here it is, the biblical text, inspired. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on that island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. By the way, reader, you did a good job pronouncing those seven foreign words there. Good job. The Gospel of John, which John? There are lots of Johns, just a glancing moment at that because it does impact that. It is, I believe, the John, of course, of the Gospel, and John of the three letters we have, first, second, and third. So he's one of the most prolific writers that we have in the New Testament. In no other New Testament book does a writer refer to Jesus as the Word, capital W. Of course, what stands out is that beautiful prologue of the Gospel of John that begins with those first beautiful 14 verses that are poetic, majestic, and last forever and will resonate through all of time more than any other speech ever given, except maybe the words spoken by the Master Teacher, the Son of God, Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God. John's prologue to his Gospel is fabulous, and he refers to Jesus as the Word, and so does the writer of Revelation. But in no other Testament book, and these are internal evidences to the fact it's the same John, you can count on it, you can bank on it, does a writer refer to Jesus. There are many names for Jesus, titles, but this is the only one in the New Testament first time that's Lamb of God. Beautiful, Lamb of God. Down at the bottom is one of the many uh, sculpted uh, statues of either a shepherd with the Lamb of God around his neck or just a lamb, just a lamb. He was the lamb. He was the one that was sacrificed. There had to be a price for your sin and mine, and he, it was his blood. He was the Lamb of God, the only Lamb of God. There's only one. There's only one. What you just sang, what we just sang, Twyla Paris wrote it about 33 years ago. She did a good job. The melody goes well with the words. Lamb of God, sweet Lamb of God, I love the Holy Lamb of God. Oh, wash me in his precious blood, my Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. Your only son, no sin to hide. 
but you sent them from your side to walk upon this guilty sod and to become the Lamb of God. Your gift of love, they crucified, they laughed and scorned him as he died. The humble king they named a fraud and sacrificed the Lamb of God. Good job, Twyla Paris, and then the, also the melody writer for putting on a musical plate, on a poetic plate, the concept of this is another way in which you can think of your Redeemer, the Lamb of God. And it says volumes about who he was and who we are, the ones that should have died, and instead he will die. There it is, in the landscape of the Balkan Peninsula and then Turkey, you see over to the right side, but there's a little red arrow that tells you, well, this little teeny lost among 2,000 islands in the Mediterranean Sea is where um, a revelation came, an apocalypse came to John, from which we have uh, most probably the last recorded book in the New Testament. And then the New Testament was closed. The church fathers didn't put in all the other stuff. He closed out right there. John had been an eyewitnesses to the teachings of Christ, to his miracles, to his resurrection. And see, the, the standard for being in the New Testament, to be inspired by God, is that you have to have walked with Christ, you have to have heard his teaching, you have to have seen his miracles, you have seen him resurrected, and if you personally didn't do it, then you need to have had a 15-year conversation with somebody who did. <laughs> That's uh, Mark, by the way. And that's the standard. You see, I can't write it. I can't add a book, and neither can anybody else living to the New Testament. It's a, it's a closed. There's, we have all we need. Might we find in the future a book by Paul that's been lost? Sure. But it won't add anything to what we don't already have, and it's of the 13 letters. Thank you for the book of Revelation. God, they preserved this. And this is the landscape in which it took place. There's a monastery that dates back to the 11th century with a cave, steep steps. And then there is supposedly the place where John laid his head on the rock where he sat when he dictated to his, not for sure, his amanuensis, his scribe. One of the seven deacons of Acts chapter 6, no doubt, is what they say. That's tradition. His name is Prochorus. You'll find him in Acts chapter 6 when they make a list of the seven appointed by the apostles to try to uh, fix the issue, the problem of the forgotten widows in the church in Jerusalem. Prochorus was on this island too. I don't know from scripture. It's tradition. He was the amanuensis of John when he dictated because Jesus said so. Write a book. And so he dictated from inspiration the words that we have there. Jesus never wrote anything. He didn't, but he did. It's called Revelations chapter 2 and 3. Just because he told John to write it down, and John may have or not told Prochorus to write it down, these are words from Jesus. Now, you will find if you have a Bible, has you have... Black and red, the colors in which Jesus speaks, red, um, to ease, you know, when does Jesus say these things? He did say things, his teachings are recorded by those who walked and talked with him, and, but uh, did he ever write anything? This is it, this is it, he did. And Jesus gives, in the context of the only sliver, slice of the New Testament, in which he wrote it, not physically, but he wrote it, 
Jesus gives precious practical lessons about ecclesia, about church. I'm speaking to the church. And things that are highlighted in the letters that we're going to look at, maybe two at a time, maybe one at a time, whatever is useful and encouraging to you, that's what I will try to do. But I'm going to, from the offset, say, look are the things that you will find, if you read carefully, emphasized by all of these letters to seven churches, real bodies of people that lived 2,000 years ago in a different context than ours, but exactly the same context of sin and Satan and a frazzled environment and need something, need meaning to my life, need to find God, need to know how to reach him, need to know how to get there to my home in heaven. Good works. That's mentioned 16 times in the seven letters. Good works. What do you think, Terry? I think it must be important. Good works. Our faith, our religion, is not just one that sits in a pew. It's one that does, does, goes, is. Good works. We are the feet and the hands of Christ. And while he taught, he also cared and healed. While I don't have the charismatic gifts, we still can care. Good works. Tribulation and patience. We don't live in the context of the Roman Empire. I don't think our government will exile us physically to an island. But they are exiling us into our churches. And saying, keep your faith there and don't bring it outside. I have remarked on that before and it seems like it's happening more and more. I was flabbergasted that, and I shared this with the class earlier this morning, that an ABC anchor would just outright criticize the Vice President of the United States for praying to God. Okay, so what have we come to now? We're going to ridicule publicly because you have a camera on you. Anybody that dares to pray to God. By the way, they may be praying for you. (laughs) I hope they do. I hope we do. May you find God wherever you are in that wasteland. So you don't believe in prayer. And you're making fun of the Tony Dungy's and the Tim Tebow's and, and the Vice President Pence. This is not about politics. It's about prayer. Tribulation and patience. There is 13 times mentioned in the letters. It was not easy to be a Christian in the late 1st century AD, and I reckon it's, uh, it's feeling that way more and more so. In a more greatly secularized, my stars, how many more of those masculines are we going to have? Our stock market's doing great, but our moral market's doing horrible. Service and love, here are the Service and love, mentioned eight times in the letters. Service, you need to be a servant. Doulos, favorite term of the Apostle Paul in all his letters for himself. I am a servant. I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. Forget any other titles you may have. Who cares about what you put behind your name in an academic setting? The question is, are you serving God's cause? Are you serving Jesus Christ? That's the question. Repentance. That's not very popular at all. Not on a societal level and sometimes not on a personal level. We are prideful people. We do not like to admit our faults. 
not to someone and sometimes not to anyone. And repentance is not just regret. It is saying it, going, fixing it, giving things back, finding peace between your relationships. Repentance is there embedded in the seven letters to real churches of the first century. You need to repent. Eight times. Six times he says, I'm coming to you. This is a reminder to all of us. Maranatha, may the Lord come soon. May he come today. I'm coming to you. I'm coming to you. Faith is used three times. It's not that it's the least important. Faith is what weaves together the tapestry of all seven of the letters, all the thoughts that are there. It's all about faith in Christ Jesus, which the Apostle Paul, excuse me, John, had been living out for 65 years ever since he was called away from his fishing industry in the village of Capernaum by the Sea of Galilee. And for 65 years he's been living it out. By the way, at the bottom of each letter you're going to find two things that in, in the English language both start with an H, which is you need to know that your home, your destination, your goal is heaven. And if that is true, then you'd better hear, or let me put it with an L word, an imperative, a command. You need to listen. Terry, if you want to get to heaven, you need to listen. You need to listen. That's a pattern in the seven letters. Number one, there's a greeting to the angel of the church. Starts out with that. I'll read it in just a second. We're only going to read one, and then the lesson's going to be yours. A greeting to an angel of the church. All kinds of disquisitions. Does each church, does Dalreda, have a specific angel of the legions of angels, created spiritual beings that God created in the heavens to serve him? Hebrews chapter 1 verse 14 says they are messengers of God. And they appear, and they have names, and they have ranks. They are archangels. They are cherubim. They are seraphim. They don't need wings. They are spiritual beings. There's an angel dedicated to each of the churches. Well, this may be human messengers because sometimes the word angel in scripture is used as a, a human messenger. So it may be an evangelist or a preacher, as you might call it. It may be that, that it, the letter is given to, addressed to. Or it may be a, a real angel. I don't know. But it's most probably, I would suggest to you, a personification of the church. Which leads me to this. If a letter were to be delivered to Dalreda today... And, and the same kind of language were to be used, then there would be an angel of the church of Dalreda. We would be personified. We are each individually going to stand before God, but as a group, we get there through this thing called ecclesia, the church, and the church, the individual church, is personified, personified by an angel. There's a special title of Christ. I've collected all of the ones, but you'll notice two of them in the only letter we're going to read today. Jesus called so many different names. Emmanuel, God is with us. Prince of Peace, Lord of Lords, King of Kings. But in Revelation, which is highly symbolic language, beautiful, he's called the one who has seven stars in his hand. He's the first and the last. He's the one who died and came back to life. He's the one whose words are as sharp as a two-edged sword. 
He's the one who has eyes of fire and feet of bronze. He's the one that has seven spirits and seven stars. He's the holy one. He's the true one. He's the one who opens things and nobody can shut them. He's the one who shuts things and nobody can open them. He's the true witness. He's the beginning of God's creation, which is not, by the way, a theological statement that Jesus is created being. You need to look at it in a context, but that's one of the many, many beautiful titles that are given to Christ, to Jesus. There's a pattern in these letters. There's praise or there's reproach to the church for its good or bad deeds. And there's a mix. It's like taking an MRI, doing an echocardiogram. Just had one last week. I'm always hoping <laughs> that it's still ticking. <laughs> you know? But you can see it on the echo Doppler that they do. You can see and you can hear. It's very... Excuse me, strange. <coughs> you hear this beating of your heart, <coughs> and uh, you start playing mind games, you know. What if it stops? How much time do I have? <laughs> what are my last thoughts going to be? Play, praise or reproach? Is the MRI going to be good to go? Or you've got a problem, and it's serious. How's it going to go? There's going to be one or the other or a little bit of both in these seven letters, which, you know, I got to thinking that's tragically, realistically, like it is today. Not everybody that hangs the word church outside of their building or calls themselves that passes muster with the one who bought the church and defined what a church is. He gets to decide. He bought it with his blood. It's his. He's the body of the church. He gets to say, this is a growth that I don't welcome. There are two bottom lines. I mentioned them. Heaven, the positive, and then hear or listen, the one that's required. There are seven there. They're called Smyrna, Philadelphia, Sardis, Laodicea, Thyatira, Ephesus, and Pergamum. It doesn't matter which order you put them in. There is an order in which Revelation 2 and 3 go. I'm starting actually with number 2 because I don't think it matters, the order in which they go. Two, have no reproach. And that's why I chose Smyrna. I chose in a brief moments now to end my lesson, Smyrna, because it's one of the ones with no reproach. And I... I not, not just pray, I feel strongly that we're, that we're there. I'm not pronouncing a blessing on, on us that everything we're doing is right. What I'm saying is I feel good about what we're doing and how we're doing it. And so I'd like to think, I'd like to think that we belong in the first category there. Sardis and Laodicea, those are the sad stories. You can be a church. You can have a building you can have a worship this morning and you will get no praise from God. Wow. That's sobering. If it's true in the first century, it's true in the 21st too. And then there are Thyatira, the Ephesus, the Pergamums that are going to get both and, and they had time to change, do better, 
fix the things, and Jesus gives an analysis of those things. He will say, you need to hang on. You need to not let go. You need to hold fast. You need to keep Christ's work till the end. You need to repent. You need to do the kind of work you did back at the beginning when you started your journey as a church. You need to keep the word. You need to repent. These are all words that are going to be there as reminders to the churches of Thyatira, Ephesus, and Pergamum. What is interesting about the location of these seven, it's been my privilege to take groups into the Turkey, into where the seven churches really were 20 centuries ago. They're like a, a V, and we know Ephesus, and we know that Laodicea had a congregation. We know that from the letter of Ephesians and the letter of Colossians, but we would have never known that there was a body of believers in Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Smyrna, the one of today, had it not been for these seven letters given by Jesus. We would have not known. See, there's a lot of churches in the first century we don't know about. We don't know about. But there were bodies of believers, 5, 10, 15, 100. I don't know the numbers, but they were seen by God. They were important to Jesus because he's the head of the church. And to these seven, he writes a letter that John's going to deliver. By the way, the item of Patmos, you see it right off of there. It's right off the coast of where these seven churches are. So when John got off the island and he went and tradition says he lived out the rest of his life in Ephesus, one of the seven, that letter, those letters of warning or praise or condemnation all went to those congregations. That's the way it played out. Here are some themes very quickly. Jesus knows his churches. This is really the most important one of today. He knows the details. He knows the new class schedule that we're putting together for the next quarter. He cares about the details. God knows the details. He knows every hair on your head, and he knows the details. He knows how much a Bible class teacher of our three- and four-year-olds, how much passion and intent and, and study and design are going to put into reaching, uh, keeping, training in the Lord our children. He cares about every lesson, every Bible study, every fellowship moment, every plan we make. He knows the details. I also know, he says, your afflictions, I know where you live. I know where you live, he will say. And in the letters he mentions people by name, actions. He mentions tragically those that are teaching error, whether intentionally or unintentionally. But he also knows who are living faithfully and knows them by name. He knows them by name in each of the churches in their context. Jesus knows. Jesus knows his church. And he knows us today. And he knows what our plans are for after the service is over. What we're going to do with whatever lessons we got. Whatever hymns we sang. Whether we're going to leave them behind or we're going to, you know... Not just sit in a pew, but intentionally apply, do something. Number two, Christ wants churches to guard their teaching. You know, in a time that diminishes the importance of theology and the study of it, I must go against the grain because Scripture has been muddled. It has been confused. Christ wants churches to guard their teaching. You're responsible for your teaching. You have no excuses. How many Bibles do you have? 
how many commentaries do you have access to? You need to test those who claim to be, to have some special insight into scripture that you don't have on your own. Why? Why does anybody else have special insight? And I'm talking about a writer or a preacher. You are responsible for your own understanding of scripture. The Nicolaitans, I wish I could tell you more about them, but they're mentioned twice in one of these letters. They were a problem. There was a heresy going through these churches of Asia Minor, and we've got ones of our own. We're not unique. Tragically, we're the same, because it's how Satan operates. And he'll say, do not allow false teachers to go unchecked. You do it with love. You do it with kindness. But you don't let it go unchecked. You don't sit back. You study it for yourself. And you need to remember what you received. You need to go back to what you know are secure, can stand in, and you need to bank yourself on that and watch out following fads. Number three, he wants us to live in purity, moral purity, ethical purity. He, we need to do better in a world that is just abandoning what used to be Christian ethics. At least our society once upon a time did a better job at least pretending to do it, but not anymore. So, you know, I worry about my kids. I have 13 grandchildren and two more coming. I worry about my kids raising my grandchildren in a context that's more and more just not concerned at all about purity. You will find in these letters that purity is a major concern of Jesus in his churches. And if it's true in the first century, it's true in the first 21st century as well. Do not live according to worldly standards. That's the message of the southern churches, and it's still relevant and applicable. Do not live. You're going to have to swim upstream. You're going to have to be different. You're going to have to be unique. You're going to have to be holy. You're going to have to be saints in the biblical definition of the word. Number four, Christ wants Christians to grow in service. I showed you how many times that word is there, but he is interested. Watch out. It's not a this or that. Take A or B. It's A, A and B. You need to know what you believe and need to be based on scripture, but you know that what you believe is also played out and lives out and real and how you speak and how you act and how you deal with your sexuality and how we serve people. It applies in all those areas. The seven letters are also going to have a theme of Christ wants Christians to be ready for. Well, it's either already here or it's going to come. In the case of the seven churches of Asia Minor, Domitian is the second emperor to bring major persecutions upon Christians, not just in Rome, but more empire-wide. And while they will diminish a little bit in the decades after Domitian will not be emperor anymore, as soon as Marcus Aurelius and some of the other emperors will come, and by the end of the second century, into the third, Christ wants Christians to be ready for persecution. You need to know that if they persecuted him, if he had to endure the master, the son of God, hardships, affliction, slander, prison, and persecution, pray tell, why, why wouldn't we? The world doesn't want when they reject what Christ has to give. They get violent. Number six, Christ wants Christians to know that just because you were 
baptized into Christ doesn't mean you can't jeopardize your faith. Be aware, be careful. So today, not only recommit to faithfulness and purity and listening to God's word, I also commit to the fact that I want that home in heaven and I want it for you too. And so I want you to encourage me to stay faithful and to be grounded in the word so that when Christ writes us a letter, it says, well done, good and faithful servant. So here's the letter to Smyrna. It's a second one. It begins in verse 8 of chapter 2. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Love how Christ is defined by this letter. He is God. He's eternal. He doesn't have a birth date. He's eternal. The first and the last. Take a line from where you are in 2018. Draw it back that way and keep going until the end of time and beyond that. Take a line from where you are in 2018 and go to the future and keep going. Eternity. He's the one, however, who historically came at a precise moment in the history of mankind and he lived as you and I and he died and he lived. So here's all of the line of history. There's a line that goes that way forever, that way forever, and in the middle right here, there's a cross and there's an empty tomb. And that is historical. And this is historical too. I know your tribulation. I know why you're frazzled today. I know what you fear today. I know what's in your mind. I know what's in your heart. As you're in worship today, I know how you've come. I know what you're worried about. I know the ravages of old age. I know the concerns of youth. I know where you're at, where you come from, where you're going to go. I know where you're going to go. I know your poverty. I don't know what you think you are, but they were poor. He said it, financially. But you're rich. Look at parentheses. How do you define success? Don't let the world define it. How do you define, in the first century, everybody defined it by gold. No, not the stock market, not what you have in your bank account, not the car that you drive. It's... uh, it's what is eternal, what lasts forever. Stuff that moth cannot eat and rust cannot ruin. You know? I know your poverty, but you're rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews, their biggest problem in that century had been for the first 35 years, the Jews and their antagonism to Christ. They put him on a cross. They wanted him on a cross. They continued to persecute the apostles. They killed Stephen, Acts chapter 7. They will continue to be the thorn in the side of Paul until he dies in 65. And in 30 years after that, the Jews are still the problem. And the synagogue, which there was one in downtown, Smyrna, was the problem and not the solution. The synagogue is now defined by Jesus as a synagogue of Satan, a place that was meant to study the Mosaic Law, to teach your children Mosaic Law was now, well, Satan is the guy that's teaching there now. Welcome to Smyrna. 
Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. That's applicable to us too. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. Maybe our kind of prison is not the physical kind, but, uh, you know, we're getting prosecuted for not baking cakes, right? Hmm. That you may be tested. And then the expression 10 days, which is symbolic, it's never meant to be literal. It's going to be a while. 10 days is nine more than one. You, I remember my first lesson when I was 13. It was this verse. I don't know why. But when I was 13, I went to this verse. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. I'm a lot older than 13 now. I have nearly 15 grandchildren. By the grace of God, the only thing that really matters is that I remain faithful. If you have an ear, hear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. One of the greatest dangers is we can hear with these physical ears, but with the understanding of our mind, we don't, says the prophet Isaiah. And Jesus, repeating the prophet Isaiah, says... Oh, you can hear with your ears, but your mind has already been turned off for a while. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. There was a real place in real time. There were real people, brothers and sisters of Christ, of yours and mine, in the ancient city of Smyrna. And they got a letter from Jesus one day, delivered by John the Apostle, and he received it on the island called Patmos. This is Izmir today. It's the second largest city in the world. You will hear five times a day the call to prayer of Islam. There's not a church there that I know of. But 20 centuries ago, there was one, a group of believers who passed the test. There was. Now today, it's an Islamic town. It was a pagan town back then, except for one bright spot. The only thing that mattered to the Son of God, to the divine, was those that were taking advantage of the sacrifice that he had made for them in Christ alone. The synagogue is not the place anymore. Satan has taken that over. Each time that I'm able to go back to his mere ancient Smyrna, like Shelby and I were back in 2012, and then again I have several times before. I go up on the mountain here and I look out. Ah, Islamic culture doesn't allow out, outward evangelism. That's part of the problem. So we must pray. We must pray. That's the synagogue. This one was founded about three centuries ago. I don't know what they teach or what they do. It was founded by a family called the Agazi family. But it's not there they're going to find Christ. It's not there. But the people of Izmir, the second largest city in the Turkish country, are going to find. Where are they going to find Christ? These are the ruins of what was Smyrna of 20 centuries ago. What's left is a 
traces of the architecture that once was. But more importantly, more importantly than this, is the letter that Jesus sent to the believers that were in that city 20 centuries ago. They had temples dedicated to Athena around them. The gods that were being promoted most prominently were the god of sea Poseidon and the god of agriculture, Demeter. And one of the ancient Anatolian goddesses and mother goddess, Sibele, was also. And in that context, there was a body of believers that was seen, identified, praised by Jesus. You hang in there. You be faithful. You remember heaven. You hear. You listen. Here are tombs of Jews from that synagogue, writings of the Mosaic Law. Mosaic Law was meant to point the way. Point the way to what? To Christ. Those gods, pagan gods up there in those mosaics, all that's left of them is Impressions on a floor that never existed, never will be. They're man-made, and they can't save. Gold, you can buy some at Izmir today. The church didn't have much. Their, their evangelism budget, missions budget, was probably very limited, unlike ours, which is, we're so blessed. You are rich, and you are poor in money, but rich in spiritual traits. These are all... Reminder to you that wealth is something you leave behind. None of the people who used to possess this still do. They're museums today. This is a reminder of how important sports were to them, if that's what our current hobby is. Strigils to wipe off the athletes. Uh, unguent that they would put on their bodies. Olympics and things like that. Maybe sometimes we're too enamored by the entertainment that we get out of sports that existed in in Smyrna as well. Here's the letter, and it's yours and mine. So, I'm going to use non-inspired poem to end. Watch out, I'm shifting from this, which is inspired, to non-inspired words. My father, he's the preaching I used, used to listen to when I was growing up, and he always quoted from poems. I never did ask him, probably should, where'd you get all those poems? <laughs> I love poetry. But, of course, today we're a little different landscape, but I still love hearing my dad find poems that relate to his lesson. I still love doing that. So I sure hope this one does. It's not a poem. It's a song. It's 16, 17 years old. It's by Sarah Groves, and it talks about the word, and it does relate to what we have just done, in my opinion. So here it is, not inspired words, but maybe it contains truth. That's what I hope. I've done every devotional, she says, been every place emotional trying to hear a new word from God. And I think it's very odd that while I attempt to help myself, my Bible sits upon the shelf with every promise. The word was. The word is. The word will be. People are getting fit for truth like they're buying a new tailored suit. Does it fit across the shoulders? Will it fade when it gets older? We throw ideas that aren't in style in the Salvation Army pile and search for something more to meet our needs. I think it's time we'd rediscover all the ground that we have covered, like, it's in red, she's quoting, Seek ye first, what a verse. 
We are oppressed but not crushed, perplexed but don't despair. We are persecuted but never abandoned. That's Paul. We are no longer slaves. We are daughters and sons. And when we are weak, we are very strong. Neither death, nor life, nor present, nor future, nor depth, nor height can keep us from the love of Christ. That's Paul. Romans chapter 8. The word I need is the word that was. He put on flesh to dwell with us in the beginning. The word was, the word is, the word will be. And the word today was a letter that Jesus sent to Smyrna. Christ cares for his church. Christ cares for Dalreda. I don't know about you, but I take great encouragement from that. And the lesson is yours. We're going to sing a song of invitation. If you're not in Christ, Christ died so that there would be a church, so you could be come home to him, to God the Father in heaven. If you're in Christ and you need the prayers of the church, then the invitation song is for you.